Well, friends, we continue through this hour of worship. We're going to God's Word, and we are in the second week of a sermon series called Faithful in the Fire. If you missed last week when we kicked it off, uh, you can go to our YouTube channel after this service and get caught up. And if you miss any of the weeks coming up, you can always check in throughout the week and follow along because this sermon series reminds us that there are fires all around us, not just physical fires, but metaphorical fires, fires that can actually harm us, that can hurt us, can paralyze us, can destroy us. And yet there is this beautiful invitation that God extends to every single human being on the planet to see all the trials of life, all the difficulties or the unexpected or the unwanted things of life, to see them through God's lens and actually to be not fearful of the fire, not fighting the fire, not avoiding the fire, but faithful in the fire. We get this imagery of this framework for the entirety of the sermon series in a very famous passage in the book of Daniel. And every single one of these sermons will start just with a reminder of this historical event. In fact, it was in the Babylonian Empire, where King Nebuchadnezzar uh, told everyone to basically bow down in public and worship a 90-foot-tall statue of himself. And there was three individuals who grew up Jewish who, with Daniel, were brought with 10,000 professional leaders into Babylon, and they were called into that place, not only by Nebuchadnezzar, but ultimately by God. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these are their Babylonian names, refused to bow down and worship this massive structure. As a result, they were thrown into a fire. However, before they were thrown in the fire, they told King Nebuchadnezzar that our God is able to save us, but even if he doesn't, we still won't bow down and worship this remarkable level of faith, not just in God, and not just in what God would provide, but ultimately, regardless of what God would do, they trusted God even to the point of death. Well, what happened next was remarkable. They were thrown in the fire and Nebuchadnezzar stood up with amazement to see that it wasn't three people in the fire. There were four men unbound walking in the middle of the fire and the fourth individual looked like a God. Three individuals then are pulled out of the fire by King Nebuchadnezzar and his officials. Not a smidgen of the effects of fire on their clothes, on their hair, on their body. It says even in the text in Daniel chapter 3 that even their clothes didn't even smell like fire. This remarkable, miraculous thing had Nebuchadnezzar uh, overwhelmed, bewildered, exclaiming and said that your God, the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, saves like no other God. And this imagery of this figure in the fire is the key to helping us understand what happens when we experience the fires in our life. And today the sermon is all about the fire of loss. And as we take a look at the life of Daniel, and as we draw from other passages of scripture, it will be a resource to every single one of us if we have experienced loss or when we will experience loss to enter into it and to be faithful in the midst of that fire. So there's three things that I want to talk about. I want to talk about the fire of Daniel's loss. Second, I want to talk about the effects of the fire. 
And third, I want to talk about the figure in the fire and what that means for us today. So first, let's take a look at uh, Daniel's fire of loss. If you have your Bibles, we'd love for you to turn there. This is Daniel chapter 1. And let me read for us just the first few passages. And it says this in Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim of Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord let King Jehoiakim of Judah fall into his power, as well as some of the vessels of the house of God. And these he brought to the land of Shinar and placed the vessels in the treasury of his gods. Then the king commanded his palace master Ashpenaz to bring some of the Israelites, the royal family, and the nobility, young men without physical defect and handsome, versed in every branch of wisdom, endowed with knowledge and insight, and competent to serve in the king's palace. They were taught the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the royal rations of food and wine, and they were to be educated for three years so that at the end of that time, they could be stationed at the king's court. Among them were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah from the tribe of Judah. The palace master gave them other names. Daniel, he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. This is my friends, the reading of God's word as we say every week. Thanks be to God. So again, looking back to last week, if you recall, there is the loss or the fire of uh, another kingdom. They lost the experience of living in the kingdom of Israel. And yet there is this great reminder that whoever is in power, ultimately God is on the throne. And regardless of the kingdoms of this world that you are in, there is a kingdom of God that wants to break into our midst. And that we have opportunities as faithful followers of Jesus today to have dual citizenship, to receive our identity from God, to receive our security and our, our strength and our provision uh, our mission in life, the reason why we do things, our purpose in life, ultimately from God. And as we dwell as citizens of heaven here on earth, we can be the best citizens in our city. There is this great invitation, not only for Daniel, but us today to love God and love our neighbors as ourselves, to actually invest in the city, to serve the city, to, to care for the city, to pray for the city, to seek its prosperity and peace. And as it says in Jeremiah 29, that this is God's plan for the exiles in Babylon back then. And it's God's heart for us today. But what happens when you experience loss? And let's take a look again at, at Daniel's loss. Just, just exactly what did he lose? You see, we can get into this narrative and have it being removed so many millennia from today. We don't personally know Daniel. Uh, we're not related to Daniel. We can't hop on the phone and talk to Daniel and hear his grief, hear his loss. And in these just few verses, eight verses here, it can skip over really the significance of all that he lost. And I just want us to just allow our imaginations to be stretched when you consider just what on earth did, did Daniel and his three contemporaries, what all did they lose? This isn't even an exhaustive list, but you can imagine that for sure, these are the things that were lost by Daniel and his friends. They lost their homeland. They lost their families. They lost their way of life. They lost their freedom. They lost their agency to do the work that they had been doing. Uh, they lost their routines. 
They lost their comfort zones. They lost their diet as they had known it. They had lost the familiarity of the land in which they had grown up in and lived. They lost their friends. They lost the potential of a future. They lost all the dreams that they had back in Israel. They lost so many things that perhaps we could completely overlook as we read these first few verses. But just to imagine, what would it be like if you were ripped from where you live, you were pulled from your family, you were pulled from your friends, all of your freedom was gone, you were forced to eat a new diet, you were forced to learn things that you had never been exposed to before. And on top of all of that, there is something that isn't overt here in the English, but is very clear in the Hebrew language, that there is a word that's used for palace master, and it's the word shinar, and it actually means chief of the eunuchs. So not only did Daniel and his contemporaries lose all these things, there is actually quite a bit of evidence, there's no other way I can say this, that they lost their ability to procreate because they were castrated as they were brought into the palace of the king. And this was a common practice in the ancient world to to turn men in service to the king around the king's harem, around the king's concubines, around the women whom the king has uh, put into a, a horrifically slave role to serve him, that there would be no case, that there would be no temptation because these young men would be castrated. They would be eunuchs. In fact, there's actually a prophecy. You can find this in 2 Kings chapter 20, verse 18. Also in Isaiah 39, verse 8, it says that one day, O nation of Israel, your sons will be taken away and they will be forced to be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. There is emotional loss. There is physical loss. There's relational loss. There's financial loss. There's the loss of a future. There's a loss of the present reality. The, the sum totality of the loss of Daniel and his three friends is incalculable. And so often what happens when I, or perhaps you, or we experience loss, it is like a fire. There are things that are painful. There are things that become overwhelming. There are things that stop us in our tracks, that paralyze us, that, that reduce us. And if just one of those things that Daniel and his friends lost was lost by us today, I imagine we wouldn't be able to move throughout life in the same way. And everybody handles loss, everybody handles grief in a different way. Some of us, we bury it and we just stay busy. We stuff it, we forget about it, we put on a happy face. People bring it up in our life or there's things that might cause us to remember that what that loss is and we, and we stuff those things down. We remove those things from maybe our home, from our life. Anything to remind us of that loss, we just stuff it, stuff it, stuff it, bury it, bury it, bury it. Or some of us, on the other hand, we get buried by it. We can't show up to work. We can't get out of bed. We can't enjoy food anymore. We can't enjoy music anymore. It is as if the fire has consumed us, has buried us. And in all those ways, it's very natural for us in a modern Western world to, 
to think that loss is actually something that God would never want for us. Now, all throughout Scripture, 66 books of the Bible, we can see that God is grieved when we experience loss, that that loss is something that God didn't originally design, that loss is actually part of this broken world in which we live in. And yet there is this incompatible view that if there is loss in our life, then that must mean we must be doing something wrong, that God must have abandoned us, that, that we are off track, that, that surely if, we, if we've done the right thing, we wouldn't experience this loss. And so what we often do in a contemporary sense is that we we try to fight the fire. We try to avoid the fire. We try to uh, fear the fire, and, and we think that the fire is bad. And yet, clearly, through this remarkable section of Scripture, God gives Daniel a vision that God has allowed, not in an angry way, not in a, I delight in this way, but God has allowed Daniel and his friends to experience the fire of loss. And there are effects of that fire. And one of the effects of fire is that it ultimately incinerates anything that is flammable. It incinerates anything that can't withstand the heat and the pressure and the temperature of fire. And yet what's also remarkable, if you're familiar with silversmiths, with goldsmiths, with metallurgy, that fire actually has the ability to remove impurities, to remove what is temporary, to remove what uh, doesn't last, and allows something else to remain. And what's really remarkable is that when we experience the fire of loss, Anything that is temporary is gone. And the only thing that remains is what is lasting. Now, the difficult thing is that many people in my 20 years of pastoral ministry, when they experience the fire of loss, everything is lost. I've had people tell me when they lost a dream for their career and they didn't get it, somebody else got the role, got the part, whatever it might be. They've come to me broken, paralyzed, and they said that because they can't get that dream that they've lost everything, their everything that they had, they said, was lost. I've had people come to me who have lost loved ones, who have lost kids, who have lost spouses, who have lost friends, who have lost parents, and they've come to me and they've used that language, I've lost everything. I know somebody who got wrapped up into a Ponzi scheme and ultimately was indicted by the federal government and, and was sent off to jail. And they, and they said to me that at first glance, they felt like they lost everything. And yet there's some people who experience loss, who experience the effects of that fire, the fire of loss, and they don't say they've experienced the loss of everything, but what they've experienced is something supernatural. And when I take a look at that historical event of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as they go into the physical fire, they're not incinerated. They're able to come out of it. 
And I believe that there is a principle here. There's an image here that we have to understand that God actually longs to meet us in the midst of our fires, longs to meet us in the midst of our lives that, where we will experience loss. And in the midst of that, we're going to experience one of two things. Either everything will be lost or some things will be lost, but something else will remain. You see, all throughout Scripture, it says, and uses the imagery and the metaphor of fire as a trial, fire as suffering. In fact, it says in 1 Peter uh, chapter 4, it says, Brothers and sisters, do not be surprised when you experience these fiery ordeals. Loss is a part of humanity. Loss is a part of suffering that is endemic to the human race. There's no way to avoid it. And we, in many ways, reach the 21st century, and we have this reality where people look out at suffering in the world and perhaps on the surface say, where is God in the midst of it? If there's this much suffering in the world, God must not be present. God must not be real. But when we get to this reality that there was a figure in the fire, this is the third point that I want to talk about, the longest point that I want to talk about, and the ramifications of what that means for us today when we realize that there is a figure in the fire for them, we can begin to realize that there's a figure in the fire for us today. Again, I want us to go to that passage. I want us to see it with our own eyes. If you would open those Bibles back up, this is Daniel chapter 3. This is in verse 19. It says, Then Nebuchadnezzar was so filled with rage against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that his face was distorted. He ordered the furnace heated up seven times more than was customary and ordered some of the strongest guards in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to throw them in the furnace of blazing fire. So the men were bound, still wearing their tunics, their trousers, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the furnace of blazing fire. Because the king's command was so urgent and the furnace was so overheated, the raging flames killed the men who lifted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But the three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down, bound into the furnace of burning fire. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up quickly. He said to his counselors, was it not three men that we threw bound into the fire? They answered the king, true, O king, he replied, but I see four men unbound walking in the middle of the fire and they are not hurt. And the fourth has the appearance of a god. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the door of the furnace of blazing fire and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over their bodies of those men. And the hair of their heads were not singed. Their tunics were not harmed, and not even the smell of fire came from them. And Nebuchadnezzar said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. They disobeyed the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that utters blasphemy against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other god who is able to save in this way. I summarized it earlier, and we read it explicitly here, this remarkable truth that three went in Four walked in the fire unbound, and yet only three were removed. 
this fourth described as one like a God. That later on, Nebuchadnezzar said that the God of Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego has sent his angel. Now, this is really important because we ask the question, I ask the question, you might wonder, who is this figure in the fire? We gave the answer last week, but if you missed it, there is this language that's used throughout the entirety of the Old Testament that though there are angels of God, perhaps millions of angels, and we see angels show up in the Old Testament, we see angels show up in the New Testament, and if ever a human being bows down and worship to an angel, any angel that comes from God, that angel says, no, no, get up. I'm a creation like you. Don't worship me. And again and again and again, there's all these pictures of people utterly overwhelmed when they experience an angel and they bow down and worship. The angel says, no, get up, get up, get up. However, there is another phrase, another thing that happens throughout the entire of the Old Testament that's not an angel of the Lord. It's the angel of the Lord. We see the angel of the Lord appear in the burning bush to Moses. And language is used that goes back and forth while Moses has a conversation with this voice, this flame that doesn't consume the bush. And it goes back and forth and it says, the angel of the Lord spoke. And then again, it says, the Lord spoke. It goes back and forth. What is so remarkable about this is that there is one who is not the Lord, but is the Lord. And Joshua, many, many years later, actually has this moment who he is about to go to battle, and he sees the angel of the Lord, and he says to the angel, are you for me or are you against me? And the angel of the Lord says, no. And immediately Joshua realizes that this isn't just a messenger from God. This is God's self. And the real question is, Joshua, are you or for or against the Lord? And he bows down in worship. There are again and again and again throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, the angel of the Lord who isn't the Lord yet is the Lord. And we have this full revelation of the New Testament that there is one who on one hand isn't God but is God. And that's Jesus, this mysterious God in the flesh, fully God, fully human, a distinct person of the Trinity. We have God the Father, we have God the Son, we have God the Spirit. Jesus was not created. He didn't just show up on the scene, born in Bethlehem. He wasn't God's plan B, but actually it says in John chapter 1 that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh. Colossians 1 says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, that by Him and through Him and for Him all things were created, that Jesus actually is the one who sustains all things by the power of His Word. The writer of Hebrews says that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. We believe with great faith and with great certainty that the figure in the fire was the pre-incarnate Jesus. Many millennia, many, actually many centuries before he was born to Mary and Joseph, the eternal Son of God showed up in the fire. And what's so significant about this is that 
there's this clear picture of how the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego saves. And there's a clear picture of how he doesn't save. Again, King Nebuchadnezzar says there is their God who saves unlike any other. No other God can save like their God. And he saves not by preventing them from going in the fire. He doesn't save them by fighting the fire or extinguishing the fire. He doesn't do anything other than saving them by showing up into the fire with them. And I want you to just to, to picture this for a moment. Somehow Nebuchadnezzar has the ability to, to look into the fire and to have with absolute clarity that this fourth figure, I, I can't put into words exactly what it might look like, but somehow there was an aura. There was something about the radiance, perhaps, something about the ability for this fourth figure to be in the fire alive, and it says unbound, walking in the middle of the fire, that immediately causes King Nebuchadnezzar to identify that this one looks like a god. I don't know specifically what that looks like. It's on my long list of things to ask God. What did the pre-incarnate Son of God look like in the fire? But it was enough for him to realize that this was no human being. This was nothing other than God's angel, the angel of the Lord, who saves unlike anything else. And so to know that Jesus met them in the midst of that physical fire. And as he meets them in the middle of the fire, he actually sets them free in the fire. And this is the key. I want to linger on this for a little bit. I want you to catch this imagery because this is one of the most transformational things that has helped me when I experience loss and suffering in my life. This fourth figure, Jesus, the pre-incarnate Son of God, doesn't meet them in the fire and then bring them out and then they get unbound and then they start walking. He doesn't meet them in the midst of it and drag them out and then make them whole. He meets them and it is very clear in the narrative that in the fire, not on the edge of the fire, not outside the fire, not uh, towards the outside, in the middle of the fire, in the heart, hottest part, right in the thick of things, in the middle of all of that pain, in the midst of all that suffering, not minimized, they are unbound. That means they're free. That means that they have agency. And it says that they're unbound and they are walking. They, they, they are free to move about. There is this actual, literal reality that I believe is a great metaphor for all the suffering in our life, that in that literal fire, they experienced freedom. In that literal fire, they experienced life. In that literal fire, they experienced community. In that literal fire, they experienced fellowship with the Son of God. And they were able to move. They were able to breathe. They were able to be seen in the midst of the fire. They were able to be seen in the midst of the fire free. They were able to be seen in the midst of the fire in it, not out of it. They were in it and yet free. They were in it and not destroyed. They were in it and not decimated. And they come out and yet the fourth figure doesn't come out with them. Now what's interesting is many, many centuries later, after Jesus was born, and as he moved throughout his life, 33 years on this earth, he lived what Scripture says is the most beautiful life that ever lived. He was without sin. 
And at the same time, he came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He taught in ways that completely upended the religious systems of the day, that it turned a relationship with God into just rules of do's and don'ts. He constantly said, you have heard it said, but I tell you. And he gave them a vision for what life could look like in relationship with God in the world. Wherever he went, he said, the kingdom of God is at hand. The experience of God as king is right here, right now. You don't have to wait to die, to go off to you know, this future reality where then you'll experience God's presence, then you'll experience heaven. He says, no, heaven has come down here on earth. Wherever Jesus went, people experienced God as on the throne, God as king, and the effects of that were miraculous. Sight was restored. The lame could walk. The dead were raised from the grave. Those on the margins were brought in and loved. And wherever Jesus went, as the gospel writer John says, People experience Jesus full of both grace and truth. And yet one of the things that Jesus spoke about frequently was the fiery furnace. And he actually spoke in different occasions through his ministry of the furnace of God's wrath. That on one hand, there was this temporary fire that was in the palace of King Nebuchadnezzar. And every single one of us experiences uh, different fires of loss in our life. Daniel experienced their loss. We experience loss. But there is actually an ultimate fire, an ultimate fiery furnace that Jesus speaks to. In Jonathan Edwards, in one of his sermons called The Agony of Christ, he actually speaks to the moment in which Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane. And as he was on his way to the cross, he clearly knew that he had come to do the will of God the Father. And he says one of the reasons he believes why he began to sweat blood is because he began to peer into the fiery furnace of God's wrath. Now, I know this is a topic that perhaps makes some of us uncomfortable. Perhaps some of us uh, think, you know, how on earth could there be this thing that uh, uh, says that, that God has wrath, that that somehow that there is fire associated with it. And a lot of things have been misconstrued and misunderstood, but ultimately there is this ultimate fire that has to do with judgment for all the ways in which we have oppressed others, we have wronged others, that we have turned our back to God, that we have treated people like objects, as we have uh, trampled upon God's creation, that there is a fire, not just of trial, not just a fire of suffering, but there is a fire of judgment that is referred to in Scripture. And Jonathan Edwards says that in the garden, he began to peer into that fire. He began to get a vision for what he was about to go into, and the heat of that caused him to sweat blood. And this remarkable truth that the fourth figure literally went into their fire, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and met them in their fire. And people saw that they were in the middle of that fire, unbound and walking in the middle of fire. That fourth figure, the pre-incarnate Son of God, meets you and meets me in every single one of our fires of loss, literally, supernaturally, spiritually. And that there is a potential that we can experience that which God longs for us to be in the midst of those fires of loss, free, unbound, walking in the middle of those fires. 
You see, fire has an effect that it burns away things that are temporary and leaves that which is eternal. When everything in our life is banked on things that really are just temporary, our reputation, our things, our relationships, our good looks, our ability to navigate things, our skills, our education, these things are all temporary. And if we base our entire worth, our entire security, our entire identity in those temporary things, when we experience loss, the effects of fire causes us to think that we've lost everything. But Jesus reminds us when he meets us in the midst of those fires, he's not abandoning us. He meets us in the midst of it. And he says to us in the midst of those fires, let me be your everything. In fact, when you realize that Jesus is everything, when you realize that every breath that you have, every relationship that you have, every opportunity that you have and had in life is actually a gift from God, you begin to realize that God's gifts are blessings that we should be thankful for, that we should be grateful for, but God's gifts are never the same as God. You see, sometimes we confuse the giver and the gift. Sometimes we, we think that God's blessings are actually the thing that are our Lord, are our Savior. And when we look to our career, when we look to our spouse, when we look to our kids, when we look to our parents, when we look to our physical health, and we think that those things can do that which only God can do, save us, sustain us, protect us, Ultimately, we've turned those things into an everything. And as Augustine said very early on in the life of the church, that is disordered love. These are good things. These aren't bad things. But when we take those good things and make it an ultimate thing, it becomes an idol. And when we experience those loss, we think that we've lost everything. And for Daniel, he was able to have all that loss. And in the midst of all that loss, all the things we talked about in the beginning of the sermon, he was able to still faithfully walk with the Lord who was his everything. Seemingly, it's all he had left. And as a result, he was able to be not only transformed as a remarkable example of faith, but God used him in a transformational way that ultimately led to King Nebuchadnezzar, as we will discover in the weeks ahead, ultimately to abandon his gods and to put his faith in the God of the Bible. And I've experienced in my own life that something can happen when I allow Jesus to walk with me through those fiery ordeals. That though I grieve, though I experience loss, and it is painful, it actually enables me to experience fully just how much I love these things that God has blessed me with, and I don't bury them. I don't avoid thinking about it. I treasure it, but I treasure it in light of the sustaining power and the bigger plan that God has for me to know that there is this bigger truth that God hasn't abandoned me, that God hasn't forsaken me, that he's walking with me through it. And then actually there is a transformation that happens as God walks with me through the pain, through the suffering, through the fiery ordeals. Now, I've heard it said uh, many times, perhaps you've heard this many times, I've never talked to a silversmith or a goldsmith, but I've heard other people who have talked to them who have said when they put gold or silver into the fire to burn out the impurities 
and to ultimately refine through the fire that gold, that precious metal. A question is often asked to those uh, smiths, and they say, when do you know when the gold is ready to pull out of the fire? When do you know when the silver is ready to pull out of the fire? And though I've never talked to them, I've heard that this is true, and many people have said this, that the, the silversmith, the goldsmith, knows when it's ready to pull out of the fire when they can look at the gold and see the reflection of their face in that precious metal. Now, this has often been used as a metaphor, a sermon illustration, that though God is pained, not just from afar, but God is pained literally by every fiery loss in our life because God in the flesh entered into the ultimate fire and entered into all the fires of our life and so intimately knows, as we do, the depth of pain, the depth of suffering, the depth of loss that we are experiencing. And yet, because Jesus entered into that ultimate fire and ultimately came out of that fire. You see, on Easter morning, he rose from the grave. He satisfied the justice and the the level of the law that is exacted to every human being that Jesus didn't die in that fire. He wasn't incinerated by the judgment of sin of humanity, but he defeated death. He left that fire so that there is this great truth because Jesus has defeated death because there is no ultimate fire that can vanquish Jesus, the Son of God, that he has entered into our fires and he longs to transform us more and more so that ultimately he can look at us and see his face. All throughout the New Testament, this imagery is used that we experience loss, we experience suffering, and one of two things can happen. It can either decimate us or it can transform us. We'll be decimated if we do it on our own. We'll be destroyed if we think that the thing that we are losing is our everything. But if we find that Jesus is walking with us, sustaining us, saving us, we grieve, as the Apostle Paul says, but we grieve with hope. And we go through this life understanding the suffering of others. And we, in the same way that Jesus meets us in our suffering, we can enter into the suffering of others as Christ leads us and guides us, guided by the Holy Spirit. And we can walk with people and help them be free in their grief, be free in their suffering, be free in their loss. Not to minimize it, not be buried by it, but to walk with people on this journey where ultimately Jesus says, I will return again. And because I've defeated the ultimate fire, As you've put your faith and trust in me, there is this reality of a new heavens, a new earth, where all the things that we've lost will be restored. All the things that we have temporarily lost will be brought back in, that all the relationships, all the things, our health, all the dreams that we have, not only will come back, but they will be infinitely more so because they will be perfect. And this temporary loss is temporary because Jesus enters in. There is no other God, no other worldview that says that we have a God that does this. And that's why Nebuchadnezzar, and my prayer is that you would see that too. There is no God that saves like this. So as we continue through this back half of our worship service, as we turn to God in prayer, would you, would you bring to mind the losses that you've experienced in your life? And would you pray that you would see what is true? that Jesus is already in that fire with you. And he longs to set you free in that fire. He longs for you to know that that fire doesn't have a power that is greater than his power. Let's pray. 
Jesus, I thank you that there is a truth that in many ways is beyond words. And so I pray that your Holy Spirit would enter into our lives, enter into our losses, enter into our fiery ordeals and remind us that you were there. You have not left us nor forsaken us and that you would be the figure in our fires that sustains us, that sets us free. Jesus, I thank you that you chose life for us and life to the full. It's in your name I pray and we say together, amen.